Father, you are good. You're worthy of praise. You're the greatest of all. You are the creator of absolutely everything. With the word you spoke and it came to be because you are all-powerful. The intricacy and design is amazing because you are all-knowing and full of wisdom. And you've put love in our hearts because you are loving and kind. And you have a plan, a purpose for everything. We confess that we are broken. We need you to fix us. And so we come, just as we are, we come to you and ask, come into our life and change us. And use your word. Your word is powerful. Your word is true. It describes who you are and what your plan is. And so please come and teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 7 through 13, page 654 in the Bibles we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And uh, we're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And today we're at what I'm entitling, The New Covenant Works the Best. I want to... Uh, start out with a video, though. So watch this video. You may have, may or may not have seen this this movie, but watch this clip. Monsieur Le Beast gave me a book the other night. He's always doing that, sending books to a good home. That's what he calls it. It's got real purpose. What do you mean? Everything has a purpose. Even machines. Clocks tell the time and trains take you places. They do what they're meant to do. Like Monsieur Le Beast. Maybe that's why broken machines make me so sad. They can't do what they're meant to do. Maybe it's the same with people. If you lose your purpose, it's like you're broken. Like Papa George. Maybe we can fix him. Is that your purpose? Fixing things? I don't know. It's what my father did. I wonder what my purpose is. We are all broken. And we all have a purpose. God has a purpose for us. He created us in such a way. Uh, But yet in our brokenness, we need him and his plan to fix us, to heal us, to help us so that we can properly live out our purpose. And we find that in God's word. Christianity 
works. It works the best. You see, there are different competing ideas, what people call world views. And these are views throughout the world that declare here is what the problem is and here is the cure, but the different worldviews describe the problem differently and thus the cure differently. And what we find is that they don't work because they're an improper diagnosis and therefore a faulty cure. Whereas we see in God's Word, because God does care, He wants us to know, He teaches us what the problems are and what the cure is. You see, Jesus said the truth sets you free, not the feeling. It's not what makes you feel good. It's the truth that sets you free. And the more truth, the more potential for freedom. False beliefs hurt to various degrees. And our passage is actually confronting a false narrative because of the danger that it presents those who were holding on to the old covenant once the new covenant was presented. And so let's go ahead and read our passage, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 through 13. It says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, see, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete, and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. Now, the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant. We saw that last week, and it's replaced because this has always been God's plan. This is He's actually a major portion of this passage that we just read is a quote from Jeremiah from the Old Testament predicting that the old covenant was a failure, wasn't going to work, not because there was anything wrong with the covenant itself, but because of the people. And so we need a new covenant, okay? The new covenant, God's plan, accomplishes God's goals for us. And we see these goals, and we'll talk about them in just a moment. You want to know your purpose, right? What were you created for, okay? Well, let's find out from God. He is the one who made you and thus knows what that purpose entails. Let's 
dig into the passage. What we see in verses 7 through 9, first of all, he says, the old covenant had faults. Did you see how it started there? For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But it was faultless, so we needed a second covenant. There were faults. But he says, but finding fault with his people. See, there's where the fault comes in, okay, is with the people, okay. He, then he goes on and he starts quoting Jeremiah. See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. They broke it. They couldn't fulfill it. The problem was in the people, but the covenant itself had faults. Now, ultimately, this hurt the Jewish people, the old covenant, and they're holding on to it. It actually hurt them because as they attempted to fulfill it but were not able to because of their stuff. They ended up getting exiled in 586 BC, but then they also ended up getting exiled again from their land in 70 AD. Instead of embracing the new covenant when Messiah Jesus came, they held on to this and they ended up getting kicked out of their you know, out of their land and so forth. And we see that ultimately this hurt them, but Not only that, even worse, once they were kicked out of the land because they refused to embrace the new covenant, they changed their beliefs. They actually ended up believing in a false gospel, that of works. You see, in the old covenant, and we'll see this later, I think, next week, uh, under the old covenant, you were still saved by grace. Did you know that? Some people think that you're Old covenant, you were saved by works, and the new covenant, you're saved by grace. No, nobody can ever be worked saved by works, even under the old covenant. It was by grace, but it was grace through the sacrificial system. That was grace. That was God's offer for forgiveness. But now the temple is gone. There was no way to offer sacrifices. So the Jews, after 70 AD, they came up with this idea that, well, we're Forgiven when we obey the law. That's work salvation. That's a false gospel. That is not what the Old Testament taught. And so we see that that this holding on to this, it ended up hurting them severely, okay, uh, because the Old Covenant, as I said, had faults. Well, so let's look at the faults. First of all, it was external rather than internal. The old covenant was external. It was these tablets of stone on the outside. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Here we see uh, this uh, idea. He starts out by saying, Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. None of us are competent. All of us are broken, right? By the way, everyone's broken, so we don't beat people up for being broken, right? We help them 
discover the truth of how they can be healed, right? Okay, keep that in mind. Well, anyway, so we see here, uh, oh, there I am. I get sidetracked. Verse 6, he has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Not that the old covenant was bad. That's not what he's saying, but it kills because it's out there. It has no ability to change us from the inside out. But the new covenant with the Holy Spirit, and we'll get to him in just a moment, okay? He can change us from the inside out, and it actually works. But you see, it was external rather than internal, first point. It was also outward ritual more than inward heart. Lots of rules and regulations in outward ritual. And, and by the way, it's not that God didn't want the inward heart under the old covenant. Of course he did. Look at Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. We're going to be in a couple different books of the uh, minor prophets. So you got to go Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. And that's, that helps you find Amos. So Hosea, Joel, Amos. I have to do it myself. Chapter 5, verse 21. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings or of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your song. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. You see, what's going on here is they were doing what they were supposed to do about as far as the outward ritual was concerned, but their inward hearts were not changed, and they weren't doing justice, and they weren't living righteous lives. And he's saying, if this religion is without this inward change, if this religion is without an inward obedience to God, he says it makes him sick. It's noise. It's a stench. Let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Uh, We see, uh, look at another passage, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 16. We see the original intent of God but also at the same time that the outward part of this covenant, because it was more ritual than inward heart, uh, as far as how it worked, it didn't bring about God's goals. Look at Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God? by walking in all his ways, to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I am giving you today for your own good. I want to stop for a second there, okay? Notice how he's calling us to love him. This is what he wants. He wants the inward relationship, even under the old covenant, right? But he he has these commands, and sometimes... People say, all oh, the commands, they're just, that's just a mean God who wants to control us. His commands are for our own good. 
because he cares about us. When we go against his commands, it ends up hurting us. And he doesn't want us hurt. That's the point. Okay, so he goes on. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord had his heart set on your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. Notice he's going to the heart, but here's the deal. God wants the heart changed, but under the old covenant, there was no mechanism to guarantee the results. There was no mechanism to change them from the inside out. So it was more outward ritual than inward heart, though that was God's call. And one last thing about the old covenant having faults it was extremely cumbersome. There are 613 laws in the first five books of the Old Testament. 613 laws. Let me show you one of them, okay? Look at Leviticus chapter 13. I know you all love Leviticus. I've been bringing that up a lot lately, haven't I? Leviticus chapter 13, fascinating reading. Look at this, verse 47. He says, if a fabric is contaminated with mildew in wool or linen fabric, in the warp or weft of linen or wool, or in leather or anything made of leather, and if the contamination is green or red in the fabric, the leather, the warp, the weft, or any other or any leather article, it is a mildew contamination and is to be shown to the priest. The priest is to examine the contamination and quarantine the contaminated fabric for seven days. The priest is to re-examine the contamination on the seventh day. If it has spread in the fabric, the warp, the weft, or the leather, regardless of how it is used, the contamination is harmful mildew, it is unclean. He is to burn the fabric, the warp and or weft in wool or linen or any leather article which is contaminated. Since it is harmful mildew, it must be burned. That's how you deal with mildew. Did you know that? Does anybody practice this? You don't take it to the priest. Have him do No. We, what kills mildew? Bleach, you get a bottle of bleach, right? You know, okay, well, at any rate, do you see here? Okay, this is just one of those rules. Now, obviously, way back then, God was actually thinking about his people. He's keeping them from potential diseases and so forth. So there's a reason behind all this from God's perspective. But it was so cumbersome, all these laws. How do you even keep them all in check and, and, and remember them all? Uh, look at chapter 4 of Leviticus, verse 27 through 31. Now, if any of the common people sins unintentionally by violating one of the Lord's commands, does what is prohibited and incurs guilt, or if someone informs him about the sin he has committed, then he is to bring an unblemished female goat as his offering for the sin that he's committed. He is to lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place of the burnt offering. 
Then the priest is to take some of its blood with his, his finger and apply it to the horns of the altar of burnt offering. He is to pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. He is to remove all its fat, just as the fat is removed from the fellowship sacrifice. The priest is to burn it on the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement on his behalf and he will be forgiven. See, there was a way for them to be forgiven, right? And it was through sacrifice. It wasn't through works. It was through sacrifice. This animal died in their place, but they had to bring the animal. And notice, they brought the animal. They killed the animal, not the priest. And then the priest took the blood and applied it to the proper places and so forth in order to bring about their forgiveness. Uh, But just imagine, okay? You're living in that culture. And Joel, all of a sudden you see him taking a, you know, a lamb or whatever, a goat here, and he's walking towards the temple. There goes Joel. I wonder what he did, right? I mean, I mean, it's, it's you know, we've, we've got this whole thing, okay, cumbersome. The old covenant, though it was good in and of itself, it didn't work because of these faults. But as we see in our passage back in Hebrews chapter 8, the fault really lied within the people. There was no mechanism to help them follow God's ways. Now look at verses 10 through 12. We see the new covenant accomplishes God's goals. It is brilliant, okay? God is amazing, okay? Look at, what he, look at this new way, okay? Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. The new covenant accomplishes the goals of God. So I want to look at how this passage, once again, predicted in the Old Testament of this new covenant that we have joined, have become a part of when we place our faith in Christ. I want to look at this and see what God's goals are, what God's ultimate purpose is, okay, for us. First of all, God wants us to obey. Obedience, and as we saw from that passage, it's because God cares about us, but he wants us to obey. He's a holy God. He doesn't lower his standards because we've all blown it. He is a holy God, and he wants us to obey. And that's what we see here. He puts his laws into our minds and writes them on our hearts. Notice the inward way to, uh, that will actually end up working, but he wants us to obey. Um, we see this in the Jeremiah passage, but another passage that really helps us that also speaks of the new covenant is Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's look at that because in Ezekiel, we see exactly how this actually works, how it accomplishes God's goal, which is 
to, to get us to obedience. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24. There are several passages in the Old Testament that predict this new covenant to come. This is one, and it begins in verse 24. We'll just start in verse 24. You could read the whole chapter of 36. It actually talks about this. But it says, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. Now watch this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your fathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Now, notice what he's saying here, the way it works. Under the new covenant, he's going to cleanse them, but he's going to give them a new heart, and he's going to put the Holy Spirit in them. This is how he guarantees that we will begin to obey him. We see it in Joel chapter 2 as well. It talks about the Holy Spirit, how he's going to give his Holy Spirit to all of his people, okay? The old covenant didn't have this mechanism to help them obey, okay? They didn't have the new heart, that new heart being born again. That's what Jesus said. He said, unless you're born again, you will not, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again where you get a new heart, a heart of flesh that wants to obey God. So a new heart that actually wants to obey him, but also the Holy Spirit, he says, who will cause you to obey him. Did you see that phrase there? That's interesting, isn't it? The Holy Spirit who comes within us uh, when you're truly born again, he gradually takes time because this whole thing called sanctification isn't overnight, right? But he gradually moves us to obey him. So we have a new heart that wants to obey him. We have the Holy Spirit who leads us to obey him. This is the mechanism found in the new covenant that actually works. And that's why Good works, though they do not save you. The gospel is salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. But those who are truly born again, they begin to be changed because of this mechanism, and so they begin to do good works. So good works can actually be seen as evidence that they're truly born again. James could say, faith without works is dead. Because it's not real faith. A real faith is going to bring about this change. You see how it works? It's amazing. I mean, it's, it's brilliant on his part because it's still salvation by grace because none of us can be good enough, right? But yet God brings this about so that, yes, in fact, we will be good. God wants us to obey, and the new covenant accomplishes this goal. 
Second, and I like this one, okay? God wants us to know him. Did you see that? Back in Hebrews 8, he says, verse 10, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, and after those days, says the Lord, I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Now, that doesn't mean there's no place for teachers. Okay, I'd be out of a job, right? Okay, No, but the, all true believers... Know God. Now, this doesn't mean know him intellectually, intellectual facts about God, because the devil knows probably more than we know about God, right? In fact, in James 1.19, it says, you believe there's one God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. And the demons are not saved, are they? This knowledge is more than just intellectual assent to a list of facts. This knowledge is also a personal relationship. And when the Bible talks about knowing someone, it's speaking more of the heart as well as the head. Okay, So it is this personal relationship that comes when you're born again, when you truly get to know Christ and God and you fall in love with him and you actually begin to walk with him because as we saw, we're able to enter into his very presence now because Jesus has opened the door. Right, So we can experience his presence, and God wants us to know him. Look at John chapter 17. You want to know what eternal life is? Great definition right here, John 17, verse 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 17, verse 3. Jesus is talking, his great prayer just before he goes and gets crucified. He says, this is eternal life. So now he's going to explain it, right? Here's your definition. You want to know what eternal life is? This is eternal life, that they may know you, speaking to the Father, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. To know the Father and the Son, that is eternal life. Once again, not intellectual head knowledge, but that personal relationship that we can have with him where we're in Christ and he is in us and we dwell with him and we speak to him and he hears our voice and he speaks to us and we feel his love at times and so forth. That relationship is what it's all about. He wants us to know him. In fact, our relationship with God is first and foremost the most important relationship we have. Our relationship with God is more important than our relationship with each other. In fact, when we put him first, when we love him first, we're able to love each other better than if we put each other first and him second. There's a greater capacity to love when we put that relationship first because that's what's most important. And so we love him. But it is a unique relationship, okay? He's God, right? Creator of the universe. He is holy. And so 
the Bible speaks of how we must fear him. In fact, the proverb says the begin the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so we must fear the Lord. That doesn't mean the kind of fear that pushes us away. Well, I'm afraid of that. I don't want to get anywhere near it. No, it is the awe of God's presence where we definitely walk softly in awe of him, but we are fascinated and we draw near to him, but in total respect. So it is the fear of God and the love of God because God is loving. He's father. He adopts us as his children. And so we have this father-daughter, father-son relationship with him. And we draw near and jump in his lap like the little kids that you hear. Don't you love little kids? I love little Have lots of babies because babies are great. I I digress. Okay. All right. All right, let's see here. Where was I? Oh, yeah, God. He loves it. So it's this, notice how it's like two different aspects of this relationship, isn't it? There's a sense of awe, and then there's a sense of love. We draw near to him, yet we fear him. That's the unique relationship we have with God, okay? But he, this is his goal for us, to know him. To know him personally. And then we see that God wants us to be forgiven. And we see this great passage where it says in verse 12, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. Total forgiveness. Under the old covenant, they had to keep coming back. They had to keep offering the sacrifices because it didn't work Okay, whereas it really was just meant to point us to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But when we put our trust in him, his blood is applied to us and we are completely forgiven. God wants us to be forgiven. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Second Chronicles Going the wrong way. Second Chronicles chapter 7, great passage. I like to start it, typically people quote verse 14, but I like to start it in verse 13 because we see the context. He says, if I shut the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, in other words, if if because of your disobedience I bring some punishment to get your attention, that's what he's saying, and my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. You see here, if my people who bear my name humble themselves. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's not talking about nations of unbelievers. He's talking about us, God's people. If we humble ourselves, and by the way, he's talking about us as a people. We're in this together. Our, Our stuff affects each other, okay? So he says, if we together We'll humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, seek him for revival. 
We turn from our evil ways. Then he hears from heaven, forgives our sin, heals our land. This is, God wants to forgive. Look at Micah chapter 7, verse 18 through 20. In Micah, that's another Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. So there you are in the, uh, in the uh, last 12 books of the Old Testament. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 through 20. He says, who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. He wants to forgive us. And so we see this this, uh, goal of God to forgive. But then finally, I want to say something that actually starts, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 8, it starts at the beginning of our passage, but I wanted to save it for, for the end. One of his goals is the new covenant includes Israel. If you notice, he's writing this, first of all, to Israel. He says in verse 8, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We saw that in the, some of the passages, the Old Testament passages that we wrote, that we read, how he spoke specifically of them and their land, that the land was promised to them, and that this, uh, we just, this very last passage of forgiveness, that he'll remember their sins no, no more. It was speaking specifically to the nation of Israel. God is not finished with them yet. In fact, even in Jeremiah, the passage that he's quoting here, Jeremiah 31, look at how it continues. Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 31. Uh, we'll start in verse 35, page 429 in the Bibles we give away. Okay, so look at Jeremiah. Uh, Thirty-one. So right after in verse 34 where he says, For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin... This is what the Lord says, the one who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea and makes its waves roar. The Lord of armies is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, the fixed order of the sun and moon and stars and sea, if this fixed order departs from before me, this is the Lord's declaration, Only then will Israel's descendants cease to be a nation before me forever. You know what forever means? Wow, it means forever. Newsflash. There's so many who believe God severed his covenant with with Israel and he has no place for them anymore unless they, you know, whatever, you know. But, But here we see it's clear, no, and specifically as a nation, he has a place. Did you know that in 1948, they became a nation again? Is that just coincidence? Or is God up to something? He hasn't finished with Israel yet. Look at Amos chapter 9, verse 15. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Okay, Chapter 9, 
This is the last verse of Amos. Speaking, and this this whole this passage is speaking of the new covenant, and in verse 15, he ends by saying this, I will plant them, the nation of Israel, on their land, and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. The Lord your God has spoken. This passage has not been fulfilled yet because, remember, when they went back When they first got the land, they were exiled, 586 B.C. They got to go back into their land, but in 70 A.D., they were exiled again, kicked out of their land. Now, 1948, they're back in their land. At least sometime, I suppose they could get kicked out again, but, uh, but more than likely, they're back again, and this has never been fulfilled yet because it says they will never again be uprooted from the land. So once they get back in their land, there's going to be a point where they're never going to be uprooted. So God isn't finished with them yet because he gave them the land. Second Chronicles 20 verse 7 says he gave them the land forever. It's theirs. People can complain about it all they want, but God gave it to them. Right? So God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. Now, here are the goals of God. If we neglect these goals, no matter how sincere we are, we're going to be hurt. And God doesn't want us to be hurt. Now, he finishes verse 13. The new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete. We've already talked about this a lot, especially last week. But let me just read it. By saying a new covenant... He has declared that the first is obsolete, and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. So legalism is ruled out. We're no longer under the law of the Old Covenant, as we talked about last week. The Old Covenant won't be brought back. It's obsolete. So God's goals are supreme. They are our marching orders. If you're a follower of Christ, this is how you follow. Fulfill these goals. We obey. Well, how do you obey? Feed the new heart that wants to follow after God. Seek and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. He'll help you obey. Second goal, know God. He wants you to know him in a personal relationship. Well, how? Spend time with him (laughs) and dig into his word. Don't neglect his word. He wants to forgive us, so spread forgiveness. How? First receive God's forgiveness. I don't care what you did. His blood is powerful enough to forgive completely where he casts it into the sea and never brings it back. Forgive others. If you've been forgiven, you're supposed to forgive others and share the good news of forgiveness. This is where the sharing the gospel is so critical to God's plan. And then finally, support Israel. Pray for her peace and salvation. Share the good news with her and be on her side. The new covenant works the best. Let's pray.
Father, we do ask you to forgive us for when we have attempted to put in and implement our own plan instead of yours, where we've attempted to circumvent your plan by falling into sin. Please forgive us and help us. We thank you that you have given us a new heart and you've put your Holy Spirit in us to help us obey you. Lead us, Holy Spirit, to follow your ways. Help us to want to follow your ways. And we do receive your forgiveness and we want to share that message of forgiveness to all who will listen. And thank you for putting Israel back in their own country now. I know you still got a plan for them. Save them, Lord. Bring them in. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior and our great high priest. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship our God.